This meeting is being recorded. Oh, that's new. So I've got a consent to This meeting is being recorded. Well, sort of. Or you can just leave that little bar in, in front of your screen for everyone. <laughs> so when do, when do you get to Lonnie, Father Dave? It's like 10.30 at night or something on Sunday. Oh, Sunday night. Yeah. Okay. Well, I'll be up there Sunday night. Are you going to, um, oh, Sunday night, 10.30. That's a bit late. So you're not gonna you're not gonna say mass for us after that, are you? Probably not. No. So, so I'll, I'll go to mass earlier in the day then. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, good idea. Can we do a Monday vigil? <laughs> well, I might come up. I might come up Sunday morning or something. Well, if you drive up, we'll go to mass together. Either a five or a six p.m. mass at at Church of the Apostles, and maybe we can go to the pub afterwards for dinner, and then go get Father Dave. Sounds awesome. You doing well, Father Dave? Yeah, doing good. Yeah, kind of sad that lockdown's finished because I was really kind of enjoying it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, As they say, every every introvert has prepared their whole life for lockdown, and yeah. <laughs> if that's not if that's not a glass half full attitude, I don't know what is. <laughs> Hello and welcome to Sons of Thunder, the podcast where apparently most of our listeners, whilst we delve into deep topics, sit there wondering, what do these guys actually look like? A number of people have contacted me recently asking, what does Marty look like? What does Father Dave look like? So just for those who don't know us, uh, if you want to Google Glenn McGrath and Damien Fleming, Australian cricketers, that's what I look like. Marty, I'm going to say, looks a little bit... Across. Yeah, I'm across. So I'm a bizarre cross between Glenn McGrath and Damien Fleming. The height of McGrath, the face of Fleming, and the hair. Marty, hmm. you're kind of looking a bit George Clooney today. There you go, folks. A bit. You can imagine this is George Clooney talking to you. But I do have a, uh, I do have more of a Roman nose that roams all over my face. That'd be the Italian side. I thought it cut out again. Then <laughs> <laughs> that was a joke. And Father Dave, <laughs> Father Dave looks remarkably like that animated cartoon on Discernment for Dummies. Oh, Father Dave. Oh, fa- oh, actually, that's right. It is Father Dave. Yeah, that's right. The uh, cartoon looks like me rather than me looking like the cartoon. And I know, I've, I've just looked up Damien Fleming. You, you're correct. He does actually look <laughs> remarkably like you. Yes. And, and I've just, I, I've just, I've just looked up George Clooney. He, he looks like me. <laughs> you're very great. Sort very of. Great not, out. Not really. You're not even great out today. You're white. Yeah, it's because of the sunlight. The tints in his hair. It's, it's sun bleached. <laughs> So for this particular episode, we are going to look at anxiety and specifically how Jesus heals anxiety, which is a big call. And yet for the three of us specifically, we're not just going to be talking about theory. I think there's a a fair bit of personal um, adventure through this issue. Now, Marty, this was your call. So should I throw to you first? as to why you, where, where the idea come from? Was it just something that you you thought, you know what, we've covered everything else that we possibly can cover. Maybe we should do one on anxiety. That's right. We've got all the way through the catechism. There's nothing left. Let's talk about anxiety. No, not quite. I've got a tip. It wasn't my idea. Thanks, Bernsey. That's but, three episodes in a row he's been mentioned in. <laughs> <laughs> well, he keeps coming up with good ideas. But kids these days, teenagers, like, Anxiety is rampant. It's almost cool. I just find it really weird. It's it's all around us. More so than, I don't know, when we were kids. And it's not something that you need to be stuck in because, I mean, how many times does Jesus say, don't be afraid? Actually, that is, I did look that up the other day. Oh, how many times Jesus says, do no, not I be afraid? I randomly Googled uh, most common phrase in the Bible. And it does come up with versions of do not fear, do not be afraid. But there is an old, there's apparently a saying of, it says it 365, 365 times, one for each time of the year, which apparently is false. It doesn't say it 365 times, so don't quote that, but it is the most commonly used phrase in scripture. Right. So that started off as a rhetorical question, but that's good, that's good specifics. Nice. So as usual, we thought, you know, I want to, I think, I think there's really something here, just in practical terms, how does Jesus actually take away, this is an affliction of our times. And so I thought we should ask Father Dave about it. 
Can, can I ask a very specific question about this? What causes anxiety? I was having to think about this just before we started. And the first thing that came to mind was a lot of anxiety caused by, I'm not talking about teenagers, I'm talking about me, a lot of anxiety caused by what I perceive is the expectation of other people when I know that that's going to be very hard mm. to either achieve or to placate in some way. There's an anxiety based on that. Because mm. mm. you can only upset some of the people all of the time or however <laughs> that saying goes. <laughs> By the way, I did, I did listen to our previous podcast, Marty. Thanks for sticking in all that meditation music, <laughs> the fan pipes. <laughs> Father Dave has that look on his face of, I don't know what you're talking about. You'll listen to it soon. I haven't listened to it yet. (laughs) Anxiety is a fascinating thing because obviously there's different levels of anxiety. I think that's important to say right at the beginning. Like everyone worries to some degree, but then on the extreme end, you've got like really serious anxiety where people are having panic attacks, can't leave their house, you know, that sort of stuff. And for people who have never experienced that serious anxiety, they can't come close to even understanding what's going on. Um, like I've, I've worked with a few people with like panic attacks and mm. everyone around them is just like saying, snap out of it. What's wrong? Yeah, push on. Yeah, and until you actually walk with the person and try and understand their inner experience, like it's you can't come close to getting an mm. idea of it. Best way I've ever heard this explained was um, if you think of your life being a bit like building a house. So, Sam, you're about to lay the foundations for your house. Is that correct? Yes, all the excavation work is done. The Rio rod is in place. We're waiting on on all the cement trucks right now. That's right. Have you done the pre-pour inspection? No, I haven't. Sorry, back to you. You already knew knew that, though, because you already (laughs) asked me. (laughs) But that is the most important part of building a house. So if they stuff up the foundation, then... I fall off a mountain. Well, exactly. Mm. doesn't matter how much time you spend painting the walls and doing the garden and interior decorating. There's always going to be cracks in the, in the walls, you know, and the ceiling's always going to be, you know, dodgy. And Maybe you should do a pre-pour inspection. Maybe I should adhere to the contract where I don't go on site and I let the builders <laughs> do their job. <laughs> potatoes, potatoes. <laughs> but if you think of your life being a bit like that, in the same way, like when, when you buy a house, most people, when you can't see the foundations because they're buried, mm. uh, you can't even see beyond the carpet. If you look down at the, at the floor of your house, you can't see whether that was laid properly or whether there's something which compromises the rest of the house. Let me just, we looked at a house just recently that was a double brick house and it had, had the two courses of bricks closest to the ground all the way around it were fretted massively. <laughs> inside and outside, and there was water leaking out underneath the house, out the garage door. And I looked at it and I thought, I don't know if it's a year's time or five years' time or 10 years' time, but this house is going to fall down. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. But if you think of this like in terms of your life, the, the foundation of your life is laid in the first five years, pretty much. But mm. that's also the part of your life which you can't remember. If, if you think back to your earliest memory, it's probably, I don't know, when you're four or maybe three or... If something really dramatic happened, maybe when you're two. I have one memory where I know it was 1981 and I was two years old, maybe two and a half. And the cool thing is we know it because my grandparents moved from that farm and the memory's on the farm with the grandparents. So there's a really cool thing where, where, and it's it's a still frame memory and it's one of fear in in grandpa's workshop, looking under the bench at all of the bits of pipe and metal that he had accumulated in that time. There's just this fear of this is not a happy place. That's it. Yeah. Is it in black and white? (laughs) Run with the idea that if if something happens during those early years to make you feel unsafe or make you feel scared, in a sense, that kind of gets set into the foundation of who you are or your way of seeing the world. And so forevermore, when something happens to remind you of that event, it can feel like the house is about to fall apart. And so, so this is where anxiety is so different to other fears because it, like you can be afraid of spiders, you can be afraid of goats or whatever. Probably my favourite phobia is anatidaeophobia. You heard of anatidaeophobia? I thought you were I thought, I thought you were too. No, it's actually, it, it's how you pronounce it. it. It's the fear that somewhere, somehow, there is a duck watching you. Oh, yeah, I have heard of that. <laughs> 
<laughs> all, all of <laughs> the best one. I don't know how you pronounce it. it it's the fear of words that. Oh, hippopotamonstrous sesquipedaliophobia. Fear, fear of big words. It's a terrifying name for someone with a fear of big words. No, there's one that's a fear of words that spelt that are spelt that that are spelt the same forwards and backwards. They're called palindromes. Yes, but the actual word for it for that fear is spelt the same forwards and backwards. <laughs> That's just cruel. It's, it's ridiculous. So the yeah. person who has the fear has a fear of the word that describes what they are fearful of. What's your favourite palindrome? A man, a plan, a canal, Panama. Best palindrome ever. You can write it out later. Anyway, we digress. <laughs> As I was saying. Nowhere near the subject. <laughs> most other fears are external. And so, you know, as, as irrational as they may be about there being a duck somewhere watching you, you know, it's something external to you. Whereas the whole thing of anxiety is that it's, the actual foundation within you crumbling. And so the, the reason why serious anxiety is so terrifying, it makes you feel so helpless, is because you can't even identify what it is you're afraid of because it's, it's within. And it's, mm. and it's in that part of your life which is unseen. So when a person has a panic attack, it basically feels like the whole building's collapsing and there is nothing you can do at all to stop it. And so therefore the reason why serious anxiety can be very difficult to heal is because you have to then go through a process of intentionally facing the stuff that you don't want to face. You've got to sort of dig into a deeper self-awareness, deeper understanding of your history, try to understand, okay, what are these patterns of thinking or these false beliefs that are, that are hidden within? If you can face it head on, you can then defeat it pretty well. But the whole thing that is that anxiety is a defense mechanism to not have to face that. And it's difficult when those false beliefs are based on something that was real. Yeah. So as an example, I had, so I think I've mentioned this before, I had post-traumatic stress disorder following the walk. And one of the triggers post-walk was a whistle. Now, I don't mean a little trill melody whistle. I mean, the farm, yeah, yeah, the farmers, <laughs> don't whistle, Marty. Go on, do it, do it. <laughs> that was the best thing. <laughs> <laughs> my, my, my dog knows yeah. everyone else laughs so, <laughs> so yeah that that full whistle and the reason for that was that in costa rica when i was mugged that mugging began with a whistle and it was two men whistling out to two other men in the slums to come and help basically bring your knives come and help so it began with a whistle it unfolded in russia was beaten up on the side of the road then managed to get away. And when I thought I'd got away, then I hear this loud whistle coming from on top of a hill. And it's a third guy running down the hill, coming at me, whistling at the other two guys saying, I want to in on the fight, come and help me. And so suddenly had to turn and just sprint and get away from the third guy chasing down the road after me while he continued to whistle behind. And there were a few other times in Belarus, two men chased me down the road, whistling at me to stop. And one of them had a knife as well. So all these incidents the, the common factor, apart from knives, which, I, which funnily enough, a knife doesn't, there's no visceral, visceral re reaction to uh, a knife. That's not a knife. <clears throat> no, but the whistle, it did. And, and certainly when I got back from the walk, I'd hear a loud whistle, which is not nice when you live on a farm. I'd hear mm. a whistle and I'd instinctively clench my fists. There was, I was straight away back into this fight or flight mode. It was something very real, but the, the lie, if you put it this way, was that when you hear a whistle, your life's about to be threatened. So there's a matter of actually, in that case, that's a very practical one of working through the reality of the, a whistle doesn't mean that and being able to compartmentalize it again. You'd have to go into whistle therapy or something? No, but I, I did chat to my older sister, who's a psychologist. I had a, a fair chat about that a, a number of times. Yeah. You know, as I said, being able to compartmentalize it and see it for what it is. And she gave me some little techniques to not to help me to react better. The harder thing though, is what I want to get to. In a way, whilst the reaction to that was very obvious, the harder part of it was coming home, not trusting people. That was really difficult. Mm -hmm. And that took a long time to work through. I remember having nightmares every night for the first six months and waking up in a lather of sweat each time and having to change the sheets on the bed and my pillowcase because I'd sweated so much. I think the record was 10 times in one night. Oh, wow. And then I'm supposed to go to work the next day where Burnsy actually did work as well. So I actually saw him around that time. Uh, I was in Western Australia working and be normal. And this actually happened. I had a really horrible night, a series of bad nightmares. And in the nightmares, I would either kill someone or they would kill me. So I was really struggling, even at that uh, subconscious level. 
and then get to work and a young couple got engaged that weekend. And they ran up to me and said, oh, Sam, we just got engaged. What could you recommend as a place to go for a honeymoon? And I remember just staring at them and then starting to freak out internally because I knew I wasn't saying anything because all I could think of, I'm flicking through in my mind all these places where really bad things happened, knowing that they are inappropriate things to say. And I, it's like I'm flicking through the pages trying to find a nice place I could go for, a, go for a honeymoon and everything's all this really bad dangers popping up. And then I start to freak out that I'm not saying anything. I'm just being silent in front of them and I've got to say something. So it was a joke. I said, I'll just go to Tasmania. It's beautiful. And they laughed and then thankfully other people chimed in on the conversation and I just disappeared from the conversation, backed out of it. So I was, I was aware that people thought that I was just carrying baggage. No one would understand what I was going through. Funnily enough, the two people I had really good conversations with were returned servicemen from Afghanistan and Iraq. That was the only times I really opened up really good conversations apart from I think with you, Father Dave, because you'd been a big part of the journey. We'd emailed back and forwards and you had uh, you had assumed some of the bad stuff going on internally before I'd even said it. Uh, so we're able to chat through that. But one of the big things that happened, I did not want to talk to people. So I spent a lot of time in silent prayer. Well, if you didn't, didn't talk to me too much about it, being, being teased by me probably wouldn't help at that point. No, that's right. Yeah, you were giving me... Uh, options for my book title at the time none of them none of them repeatable <laughs> uh it, it was it was really difficult to talk to people about it uh and i was really glad that the book eventually came out that that gave me an opportunity for people to just say here read read it and then mm. you can have a, you can come back with a bit of an idea of what the journey was like and how complicated it was um, that also helped me though this is a big part of it writing the book and silent prayer really helped because the more I wrote, the more I remembered how much I'd forgotten. Mm. What I'd forgotten was all the amazing, the beautiful, the transcendent, the inspiring. Oh. When I finished the journey, all I remembered was the times I nearly died or thought I was going to. Because mm. the emotional response that locks those memories in really. Yeah. They were really significant. Mm. And just the, the importance of journaling or even going back to scripture and, if you will, God's journal mm. to re-identify with the beauty and the promises and uh, the, the amazing fruit that's been born as a result of even these really bad things that happen and being able to see the, the really cool things that happen around those times as well. Mm. Token journaling is more important than publishing it. Yeah. Oh, it helped. It was really nice. No, and I mean this seriously. It was no, very not, nice. To not, not everyone has to publish. No, no. It was very nice to be able to hand it to people. My grandfather yeah. did the same thing. He never wanted to talk about World War II. And when someone, this actually happened, one day someone said to him, so what was World War II like? There was a pause. He looked out the window and he said, weather's closing in. If we want to go for a fish, we'd better go now. Mm -hmm. Yeah, just absolutely ignored the questions. Grandma placed in front of him one day a typewriter and said, sit down and write. Everyone wants to know. So write your memoirs. They can read it, and then you don't have to talk about it. And then the amazing thing is, we have his memoirs here. There are all these inserts where he's later on remembered something, thought, oh, that should have been in the memoirs, and he's, he's written about it further. So it wasn't that we just got to the end and thought, mm. right, it's done, I don't want to touch it again. And it is quite amazing, his memoirs of World War II. Mm. And it is quite horrific. What, he was a prisoner of war for five years in Nazi Germany. So... In writing it, there was this, it drew other people in. Everyone understood, and a lot of people knew now, yeah, this isn't something you want to talk about. You just simply say, I read your memoirs, that's full on. You know, mm. at which point he can just say, yeah, it was. Let's go for a fish. Mm. Mm. There's an understanding. Mm. So this is hard. When, when people yeah. are suffering with anxiety, how do you, how do we place ourselves in a situation where they know that you are willing to understand? I think just, just to break open your sharing there a bit, Sam, because I, I think what you experienced there with that trauma and then trying to turn up to work looking normal, I, I reckon a lot of people experience that. You know, like, like everyone goes to work trying to put on a brave face. You know, we, we know when we look at the statistics of how much dependence on alcohol there is in our society, how much dependence there is on gambling, 
um, various other. You see that you see that right now with the like this lockdown, but the bottlers are open because they're yeah they're essential, essential services. services. Essential services. <laughs> Seriously. So I, I, I'm in, in no way am I an expert in this, but I've I've just tried to read bits over the years to understand people I've worked with or even my own journey. There was a thing I came across some years ago, basically explaining the, I suppose, the the chemistry of the brain. Um, that there's this particular chemical called cortisol, which is, yeah, basically designed to help you fight or flight. You know, but it's the stress chemical. You know, so in a in a, in a dangerous situation, it's it's going to wake you up, give you everything you need to get out of that dangerous situation. But the problem is that a memory can almost become linked to this chemical. Mm. So every time you hear a whistle, it's not just the the event you're remembering, but it's the feeling you're remembering that comes back. Well, I've got to say, it was more the feeling than the event. Yeah, yeah, because the memory is linked to this whole chemical reaction in the brain, and it feels horrible. Now, so this is where people come to a very simple thing of well. I'm either going to feel horrible or I'm going to do something to make myself feel better. And so this is where you can slide into addictive behavior because, you know, addictive things give you a great hit of dopamine, which makes you feel good. So the more I feel anxious, the more I need to go for alcohol or pornography or gambling or, you know, choose, choose your vice. You know, so often this is a way of dealing with anxiety. Mine, by the way, was the gym, which you didn't name. Yeah. 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 So, uh, so that, that, that's probably a healthy dopamine hit. <laughs> yeah, it was. Uh, but, but I, you know, I'll, I'll be upfront in saying that I know that at times that it wasn't from a healthy perspective. It was, uh, it, it did delve over into being unhealthy, just trying to smash it out again and again and again and just look at gains. And uh, it wasn't just simply for health. So, yeah. So, so your biceps can get too big. Uh, no, more that your eyes become too small. <laughs> you stop seeing yourself for who you are. Yeah. They become so focused on who you mm. want to become. It's an important mm. thing. Like when, when, so often when we talk about people battling with habits of sin, we assume that the sin is the problem. You know, like we say, okay, if you struggle with pornography, you've got to deal with lust. But actually, most of the time, you've got to deal with anxiety. You know, like, like really, lust is not really the main driving force. It's the fact that you're trying to medicate a deeper pain. And if you can become self-aware of that, then you realize I don't need to turn to this addiction as a way of medicating it. Well, also, I think everyone's got that really profound... I've never met anyone who does not want at their core to be loved. And I think often that, that absence of that or an absence mm-hmm. of an awareness of being loved can re- result in the same thing, you know, leaning towards alcohol or pornography or that self-medication. But, but even that, the, the, the desire to be loved is also a desire to be safe. And I think yeah. that's where it links into the anxiety thing, is that you could often be pursuing a fantasy of love. In, it, it, it's in sort of this fantasy world where this person is going to listen to me, this person is going to understand me, this person is going to keep me safe. And subconsciously, that's actually coming out of the fact that this is everything I'm trying to run away from. You know, like I'm, I'm living in a world where I don't feel listened to, I don't feel understood, I don't feel safe. Yeah, so that's, I, think, I think that's where it becomes a, a driver of all of our bad behaviour. Do you feel listened to by us? Or do we cut in too much? <laughs> I'm used to it. <laughs> <laughs> Marty, you had your own struggle. Is this okay to say this? You can cut it out. You're, the, you're, you're editing yeah. at the moment, so yeah. you can do what you want yeah. with the editing. But yeah, go you for had it. Your, no, no, I'm, I'm an open book. <laughs> sometimes do to close a few pages but anyway you've had your own struggle with anxiety pretty severely too it was sort of more characterizes depression for me so it was a while back I, when i came off um i'd been working in school ministries for a year in a really difficult situation like i came out of that i didn't recognize at the time but depressed which Actually, there's a bit of a story to that because I was only, I think I was 19. And I remember just feeling like I was in a, in the bottom of a well, like in the ground, and it was all muddy at the bottom. This is figurative, obviously not 
like, not like you know, me, but, literally. But this, no, but this, yeah, not, I wasn't literally at a well, figuratively at a well. But that's what it felt like. It was damp and cold and muddy at the bottom, and you're stuck in the bottom, and it was too high to get out, and the walls were slippery. And you could, if I looked up, I could see that there was light at the top and that the, the sun was somewhere, you know, that there was day outside the well, but it was sort of irrelevant to me because it was so far away and you couldn't get there and just spent, you know, months sort of walking around in a black and white world. But I was only, like, I don't just come out of school and I've been on, been on the, um, done this really difficult year of ministry and I just, you know, trying to struggle with this, trying to work out what it all means. And I remember just thinking, maybe this is just what being an adult, this, you know, being grown up. Mm. And if that's the case, it sort of sucks, like a lot. No one, you know, who'd want to be a grown up? So this sort of compromise sort of in myself. And I, I remember one time I was having a shower and I, I sort of, it was this moment that where I was prepared to be honest with Jesus, which was sort of breaking out of that compromise and say, and I just, I, was, I started crying. I was breaking down. I was saying, Jesus, this is just crap. This is, this is, this is crap. I'm, uh, this is really bad. I'm not happy with it. It's not good enough. It's not, this is not, I, I hate it. I'm not prepared to just accept that this is normal. You know, and this is grown up that, and anyway, had a, had a big teary at, at Jesus. He was good enough to listen to me the whole time, even though it was probably not very respectful language used on my part. But, but how important in those moments that you are actually just blunt and honest? Yeah. Well, later that same day, I, through a number of people, my, my dad and some people I was talking to, sort of got the starting of a diagnosis of depression. Like the day I was prepared to be honest with Jesus and said, this is, this is crap, you need, to, you, need, you need to do something, you need to fix me. He, he started fixing me. And it took probably another week before I was found the right doctor and, and, and you know, there's some treatment which include antidepressants and counselling with the doctor. And it took a while, it took a year or something to be sort of out of it. And then, and it was more than 20 years ago. Now they say, I'm, I'm healed. I'm so healed. I'm, I'm not even empathetic anymore. Like, <laughs> I, 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 I can... I can actually, I think it's a real story of hope. I, I can only remember like that, that's that image I was telling you about being in a well that I can only remember that because I remember me telling other people that I, I, I can't identify with that feeling at all. I don't, mm. I, I don't, I, I, I don't live there. And I, and I don't even remember what it's like to live there. All I can remember is this is, this is how I described it to other people. At the time, I can remember my own voice talking about it. So I, I believe it, that that's what it was like, but I can't really remember what it was like. So healing is possible. So for most people, Father Dave was saying that it's in the first, you say the first five years, the foundations are laid, you don't remember it. Mm. But for Marty, it was up until 19. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, big foundations. <laughs> I mean, the, the reality is that you, you, your family of origin is so important in shaping who you are. You know, so... The really big stuff often comes from when you're a young child, but tra traumatic experiences can happen at any point. There, there was a fascinating study I came across some years ago called the ACEs study. Have you ever come across this? No. Stands for Adverse Childhood Experiences. It was basically a, a big health survey done in the US where they, they surveyed some like 50,000 people and looked at sort of, I think it was 10 key areas where you could experience an adverse childhood experience. And they basically tracked all these people to say, okay, like go, go through this questionnaire and work out what your score was. But they then went through and then said, okay, let's, let's now do a health survey of the same people to see, you know, now 50 years later, what their health prospects are. And what they found was that the, the more adverse experiences you had as a child, the worse your health was, you know, and, and it was, you know, so like if you had like one bad experience as a child, you maybe had like a 20% higher chance of heart disease. But then if you had two bad experiences as a child, you would have like a 400% higher chance of heart disease. And it was like almost this exponential growth of negative health effects. And, and it changed the whole way that they understood the link between psychology and physiology, really. 
but but it, it kind of blew it open as well. Like like so that there is something to which, because you're carrying this stress within you, it can actually have a bad side effect to your body. So so even things like bad eyesight, you know, um, caused by bad childhood experiences. But then also recognizing that the way that you then medicate that anxiety through alcohol, smoking, and so on is going to lead to that as well. So, so it kind of created this, this holistic picture of how, yeah, like, like trauma can then influence your behaviours but then just also influence your health. But one of the key things they then realised was that the, the answer to that was, was really resilience. If you can have a close network of people who listen to you, who care for you, who understand you, your ability to deal with those negative experiences is so much stronger. So while they can't necessarily stop bad stuff happening to kids, they can try and create an environment where you can talk about it. Yeah, and so a bit like you writing your book, Sam, probably has had an enormous positive effect to your health and you know, the, the longevity of your life potentially. Well, I've spent, I've spent a good portion of my life now doing speaking engagements, unpacking all the bad stuff that happened on the walk, and it's kind of a cool story now. It's a complete reversal of what, what it was initially. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. But it means that a lot of that anxiety doesn't have a hold of you anymore. Um, so that's it. That's the antidote. Go and get invited to, to talk to people about your, your issues you know, in big groups <laughs> about your issues. Uh, there was a study a couple of years ago, Father Dave, on resilience, on how, how do you actually breed resilience? How do you grow it? And all I remember specifically was I don't, don't remember anything from the study apart from one little anecdote that stuck with me was that they found that there was a link between children who were forced to eat the food on their plate or go without and them being quite resilient as young adults they could deal with relationships quite well healthy relationships uh, they were most likely to become school captains of their schools etc good leadership and the kids who simply said i don't want to eat that and then their parents said well what do you want and they said, I want chips, chicken nuggets. chicken nuggets. And they got that. And chips. They were far more likely to have significant uh, anxiety issues in their teens and in, in their oh, early wow. 20s. And mm. I just, that, that was just a link, right? That, that, that's uh, not so much, well, they were saying correlation as opposed to causation. But I just remember seeing that and thinking that's phenomenal. That's something simple, but it's breeding resilience. It's growing resilience in a child in a way that is really important to them, but it seems almost insignificant to us as adults. Mm. And I think that, that comes back to that famous quote we have mentioned in a previous episode that... Don't believe everything you read on the internet. By no. Abraham Lincoln. Sorry, different, different one. <laughs> that life is pain and anyone who tells you otherwise is trying to sell you something. <laughs> <laughs> Minus. <Sorry. laughs> There, there, there is a there's, a, there's a need to be aware of the fact that you know life hurts and that's terrible, but it's also just a reality, and 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 sharing with other people about what they've gone through can actually help put your stuff in perspective. Hmm. Yeah. So, so one of the key things with with being healed of anxiety, I think, is having a place where you can talk it out. You know, you, and that, you need and that to... includes prayer. I don't mean just pray about, it, but yeah. actually talk it out and do what Marty did. Be blunt. Call a spade a spade yeah. and be open a bit. Go to adoration if you can. Adoration would be a better setting than in the shower, just saying. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, actually experiencing the compassion of God, you know, that, that, that God was there when that happened. Mm. Yeah, he, he, he knows it better than you know it. And, and even the fact that God took that pain on himself, like there's something in that solidarity of the cross that no matter what we've experienced, we, we didn't experience it alone. It's almost like Christ was right beside us taking those blows or those words on himself as well. And, and there's something so healing in gazing on the cross and seeing your own story reflected back at you mm -hmm. and realizing that, well, yeah, that's the pain that he's experiencing there on the cross. It's, it's, it's my pain. You know, I'm not mm -hmm. alone in it. Well, since, since I've actually already shared something fairly personal, I'm just going to go full hog and share what was probably the most impactful prayer moment I've ever experienced. And this, it was, and this is probably one that not many people might be able to relate to all of those bad stuff, all of the bad things happening in the walk around the world. But for this one, I, I went through a separation, then went through a divorce and annulment. And I think most mm -hmm. people at some stage in life deal with the relationship issues. 
And it's not always actually before we started recording and you came online father dave marty was in the background on the phone to some engineers and uh they're sorting through their relationship issues a few of them in the workplace it's a disaster <laughs> <laughs> so i think everyone deals with the the relationship problems and it was i think i'd only been separated for one or two months and I felt like I was walking around with a sign on my head that point had arrows pointing down at me saying separated. I felt like my identity was in that. And I'd moved in with a couple of, into a Catholic household, a few men, great guys and became some of my best friends, but they were heading out into Sydney, going out uh, to, Just want to point out, not, not, not good enough friends to do a podcast with, but <laughs> please continue. Hey, we're going to have them as guests one day. Uh, <laughs> But they actually, some, the uh, Source and Summit documentary thing that we filmed, they are in that and you aren't. But Father Dave is. <laughs> Touche. <laughs> but they, they were heading out to the pub and they, they said to me, oh, do you want to come out for dinner? And I just said, no, nah, no, nah, I'm, I'm okay. I just I genuinely, I didn't say to them, but I just genuinely did not want to be in public. They walked out the door and as soon as the door shut, I cracked up crying. And it actually shocked me that it was, I just couldn't, stop crying and I walked out the back of the house sat on the veranda and attempted to pray and couldn't I just had no words to pray in the end all I said was God this isn't fair and just in my spirit just internally it felt as though God just replied with I know and that was it mm. and the silence and like it's difficult to describe the I guess the solace the the hope that came just from that sense and, and again that recognition of he's been through a lot worse he's been there he's been and he's in this and he's in the pain and, and jesus does enter into that pain um and you started with this marty by saying that you know you want to talk about how jesus heals anxiety he doesn't heal it from afar mm. it's not a magic wave of the hand he enters into it and mm. and if anything lifts that load from our shoulders whilst lifting us up off the ground there's something really important about coming to a place of prayer where you can experience God's compassion and then the fact that God knows what you've gone through. I, I often think, you know, when, when people get caught in this sort of circle in their head telling a story over and over again, particularly when you're sort of stuck in there, some sort of resentment against somebody. Like the guys that mugged me and I kept nearly every day for a few months going back and uh, doing awesome kung fu moves on them. Yeah, yeah. but but it's, it's yep, really sort an of attempt... Like <laughs> it's it's this deep desire to be heard. It's like I've experienced something terrible and I want someone to understand that. I wanted them to understand it. Well, yeah, so, so even revenge, that, that desire for revenge is I want you to understand my pain. But, you know, people can become consumed by this sort of anger and bitterness because they're just telling the story over and over again to themselves and it gets worse and worse. Whereas I think if you can just sit down and realise that God gets it, he knows it, that just starts to diffuse it, yeah. So what's the opposite of anxiety? Is it this, this seems obvious to start with, but you know, is it is it hope? Is the opposite of anxiety joy? Is the opposite of anxiety love? Or is it all of those combined? I think it's feeling safe. Because mm. you can still be surrounded by chaos and mess and people hating you. But if you feel like you're at a place of just being safe in who you are, and and I think that's the whole point of when Jesus is trying to reveal God as Father, he's trying to say, look. Don't worry. You know, that, that's the whole thing in, you know, in the gospel where he says, you know, don't worry about tomorrow. You know, your father's got it all. Like your father cares for everything. Where does he say my father is greater than all and no one can snatch you out of his hand or my hand or something like that? I think it's in the Bible. It's in the Bible. Yeah. One of the gospels. Jesus makes a statement. My father is greater than all. Somewhere at the I back. Just, I just think that's like such a simple statement. You might hear that from a three-year-old, but Jesus really means it. Is that, a, that amazing? He's not exaggerating. Is that amazing? It's not hyperbole. <laughs> the amazing line from St. Paul, that I rejoice in my sufferings, in my weakness, and, and knowing that our that we are making up for what is lacking in Christ's sacrifice, which I think the first time I ever read that, I thought, is he allowed to say that? Surely there's nothing lacking in Christ's sacrifice. Thankfully, in the footnotes, got a study Bible, there's a really nice explanation there that what is lacking from Christ's sacrifice is us joining. It's not just Christ's sacrifices for us. And we go, woohoo, thank you. And then we go off in the other direction. 
that he's opened the door for mm. us to mm. walk closely with him. So repent and believe. So what is lacking is, is in my own suffering that I remain focused on Christ and I, I trust fully and I accept that sacrifice made for me and what's been opened as a result. Because I think God's agenda is that he wants us to be fully healed. And like, so, so our agenda is we just want all the bad stuff to go away so we can live happily ever after. Mm. I want the chicken nuggets now. Yeah, I want the chicken nuggets now. Whereas God's saying, actually, no, I want you to be free from all your fear. I want this stuff to no longer have domination over you. And if that means leading you to actually face your fears and be able to learn how to step into them without them controlling you, then that's actually part of the healing process. And I think that's, you know, you see that with St. Paul, where Paul is almost boasting about all the horrible stuff that's happened to him, almost as a way of saying, you know, I'm not afraid anymore. You know, they can Mm. try and stone me to death. They can scourge me, but I'm still going to love them because I'm no longer scared. And how much is that the bottom line in all this of knowing that I can love because I am loved Mm. and how freeing that is? I think each of us at different points dip in and out of anxiety. For most of us, though, it's a matter of how quickly can we acknowledge that I've become anxious and I've lost sight. I've started to sink like St. Peter. Mm. Why have I doubted? What am I doubting? Even to that point of it, I think there are times when I've become anxious in life where I'm not even aware that I'm doubting Mm. because I just want the pain to go away. Found it. John, John 10, 29. My father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my father's hand. Mm. I think one thing just to throw in here is like we, we, we're talking about how to be healed of anxiety. If you're anxious about something which happened in the past, that journey of going through healing of anxiety is difficult. But if you're currently still living in an environment which is feeding anxiety, it's really difficult. <laughs> and I think it's important to know that because one of, one, of the, one of the big problems is that like, if, if your parents are dealing with anxiety, then you end up with a whole family environment which is built around anxiety. Yep. And the dysfunction of that has probably then invested you with this same scourge of, of anxiety. But it's so hard to deal with your own stuff while you are still surrounded by everybody else's junk. Mm. And I think that's just something to... You know, get some good help with, you know, get, get some good advice from someone externally because sometimes it's important to step away from a dysfunctional environment so that you can actually sort of just breathe a bit of fresh air and understand what life is actually meant to be like. Because when the dysfunction becomes normal, you've got no way of understanding what normal life should actually look like anymore. Mm-hmm. All right. Better sum up. I can't remember what the points are. What's the instructions? Pray, hope, and don't worry. St. Pio. And not in, a, not in a Hakuna Matata kind of way. <laughs> I think pray for self-knowledge. St. Teresa of Avila always said that self-knowledge is vital all the way through the spiritual journey. Pray for self-knowledge for the rest <laughs> of your days. It's uh, Teresa of Avila, the musical. <laughs> <laughs> Whole stage full of dancing come like nuns. I can see it now. <laughs> yeah, that's it. Um, the exterior castle <laughs> interior castle uh, <laughs> oh, for the for the musical oh, anyway. the, oh, the, the musical okay yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah pray to understand the stuff that you can't see or don't necessarily want to see come to a place where you can have a really honest relationship with jesus you know, where you're not afraid of not being really polite again <laughs> you know, say, like- say Teresa of avila Who's, yeah, who's, exactly. The horse and cart got stuck in the bog. She <laughs> she jumped out to give it a push, and as she pushed, it bolted and went forward, and she fell flat first in the mud. And one of the other sisters overheard her mumble under her breath, "No wonder you got so few friends." <laughs> <laughs> if this is the way you treat them, that's right. Yeah, so so you you need to get to a place where you can be really honest with God. I, I think there is something very healing about going to the cross and realizing that. There's that place of solidarity that Christ understands your pain. He's with you in that. And know that it's not normal, as in it's normal, but it's not how we're supposed to. There is something beyond yeah. this. 
Uh, it's it's normal in the sense that it's around us everywhere, but it's not normal not in that you're not, this is not how it is supposed to be. Yeah. And to realize that the process of healing is where Jesus is going to gradually lead you to face your fears one by one. In the, in the same way a parent would help a child overcome a fear of spiders by actually walking up a bit closer to a spider, you know, or looking at, the, at a spider in a book. You know, there's, there's something where I think Jesus is going to just gradually lead you to face your anxieties one by one until they don't have control over you anymore. Is um, reconciliation, is there a role for confession here? Sounds like a leading question. Well, I'm just thinking. Not, surely, not, surely you know, there is. Surely there surely. is, but maybe it's not quite as obvious. You know what I mean? Not not in a scrupulous kind of. The thing that comes to mind, this could be a whole other episode in itself. Uh, a couple of years ago, I was chatting to someone about the process of Alcoholics Anonymous, the 12 steps. Yep. Step four, I, I'd never really heard about. I'd, I'd always heard about the first step of recognise that there's a higher power. But the fourth step, they kind of do this whole inventory, resentments, and you've got to go through the whole of your life, everyone you've ever held anger against, and you basically got to list them off. And you've got to like, list off the name and what it was they did to you that you're holding the resentment to. But then the, the, the second part of that is you've got to go back through and say, okay, how did that bring about the worst part of me? So mm. in me trying to cope with that injustice, I became selfish or I shut down or I did something bad in return. And it sort of recognises how the defence mechanisms, we, we often end up attacking because we're afraid of being attacked, you know, or we mm. will strike first to try to make sure that I'm going to be at peace in some way. So I think maybe there is a place for confession in that. Like there's some way of recognising that. Well, the first thing that came to my mind was examination of conscience, which is essentially what you've just outlined. Yeah, but I suppose it's, it's, it's trying to recognise, okay, there's an injustice which has been done to me, but in my desire to protect myself, I've then passed that on to other people. Mm. Mm. Um, and so part of that process of healing is I've got to be honest about what's been done to me, but I've also got to then be honest about what I've done to others. Mm. And it could even be a case of acknowledging how I may have pushed God out. I don't even want God's healing. I'm happy here. Well, I'm not happy here, but I'm, there's almost this <laughs> I see circular that. I satisfaction. See all the time. It's so easy to see this with other people than myself, but I see this all the time with, you know, little people, children that, you know, I, I live with because they're mine. But oftentimes, especially my little one, you'll find her, she's just, she's so upset about something and she'll be, she'll run away to a room and she'll be there and she's just unhappy. And she's, and, and I'll go in there and say, you know, come and come out, come, you know, like whatever this issue is, it's not an issue anymore. And I can just see it so clearly, it boils down to no, I prefer to be miserable here on my own, mm. even when I don't need to be. In, like this, the, the reaction may or may not have been justified, but it's all in the past now. And I just look and go, it's really painful as a father. You go, you just, you just, you want to be miserable on your own instead of coming and being alive. When I was younger than your youngest, Marty, I remember refusing to eat what was on the on my plate. And my dad saying, do you want to eat your broccoli? And me saying, no. And he said, do you want to finish your meal? No. Do you want to finish your carrots? No. Do you want a piece of chocolate? No. What? He said, oh, no, no, you said no. You said no. And him laughing and walking out of the room. <laughs> yeah, I, I just want to say no to everything. <laughs> it, <clears throat> it's very true that we can become very comfortable with our brokenness. You know, if you think of that story of Jesus healing the man at the pool of Bethsaida, who'd been there for years and years, and Jesus is like, do you actually want to be healed? Like, mm. I'm happy to heal you, but you look like you're really comfortable playing this role of the victim and blaming everybody else. So, yeah, there's a point where we've got to make a decision to step out of it. And maybe it's, you know, even with the addictions that come from anxiety, it's like, you know, I really enjoy the alcohol or the gambling or the smoking and... I can't imagine life without it. So yeah. I, I don't want to heal the disease that's causing me to turn to this as the medication. Well, shall we uh, shall we close by praying both for ourselves, but for all our listeners as well? 
Um, and Father Dave, can I put you on the spot to be the one to pray for us, please? Yeah, yeah, sure. Well, Lord God, we just pray that you would pour out a real spirit of peace into our hearts, that you would bring us to a place where we feel so safe in your love that we can be brutally honest with ourselves, that we no longer have to hide in the same way that Adam hid, hiding himself behind fig leaves because he was afraid of his, his weakness and his brokenness. Help us to feel so safe that we can step out from behind all these things and stand before you in our, our great need, in our nakedness. And just say, Lord, come and heal us. Come and speak truth and speak healing. Speak to us a love which touches into the deepest areas of pain in our hearts. And Mother Mary, we particularly ask your intercession to walk with us through this journey that we could know the love of our Father. And we just pray your blessing on us and all those listening, Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. A lady undoer of knots. Pray for us. Amen. Pray for us. St. Pio, pray for us. Pray for us. Pray hope and don't worry. Hey, you mentioned earlier that nightmares, like you're not, your nightmares were either you killed someone or someone killed you. Which was worse? Um, the, the me killing someone because there was, a, there was an actual visceral sense of guilt even once I'd woken. Hmm. Yeah. I remember one of them where I uh, picked up a... I was cornered in a... The, you know when you get a tree that's kind of hollow you can get inside mm. I'd been, ch been chased by these two men through a forest in Russia ended up in the, the hole of the tree trying to hide from them and they came around the corner they found me and came in trying to trying to kill me and beside me was this metal bar and I picked up the metal bar and bludgeoned them both to death and woke up in a lather of sweat having just you know in my mind it was absolutely graphic you know, and really hard to calm down and yeah no no awful so yeah worse than Grand Theft Auto <laughs> I reckon the second volume could have just published your dreams, dreams. <laughs> <laughs>